as we come to our passage, we're returning to 2 Kings this morning and to our study of the prophet Elisha. Um, Elisha was a disciple, a student of the prophet Elijah, and Elijah's ministry has now come to an end with his being taken to heaven in a fiery chariot. And now Elisha is the leading prophet ministering primarily within the northern kingdom of Israel during a very dark, uh, a spiritually dark time. Um, he's taking uh, his ministry, like Elijah, is taking place uh, during a time when idolatry has become dominant. And, and part of what the author wants us to see is that this commitment to idolatry has uh, led to a culture of death, um, almost quite literally, within the northern kingdom. The land itself is experiencing famine. Wild fruit, as we saw the last time, turns out to be poisonous for a group of prophets. Food in general is scarce, and faith in the true God is also scarce. But God is at work. Through Elisha the prophet, God provides um, a miraculous water for an army. He has saved children from entering into debt slavery. He cures what is poisonous, and he repeatedly provides food where there is scarcity. And today we're going to see how God uses his prophet as an instrument of life. This is a, a little bit of a longer reading, but it is a narrative, so it's, it's telling a story. Um, would you rise for the, the reading and hearing of the Word of God? This is Second Kings chapter 4, verses 8 through 37. One day Elisha went on to Shunem, where a wealthy woman lived, who urged him to eat some food. So whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there to eat food. And she said to her husband, Behold, now I know that this is a holy man of God who is continually passing our way. Let us make a small room on the roof with walls and put there for him a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp, so that whenever he comes to us, he can go in there. One day he came there, and he turned into the chamber and rested there. And he said to Gehazi, his servant, Call this Shunammite. And when he had called her, she stood before him. And he said, uh, he said to him, Say now to her, See, you have, ta- you have taken all this trouble for us. What is to be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? She answered, I dwell among my own people. And he said, What then is to be done for her? Gehazi answered, Well, she has no son, and her husband is old. He said, call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway. And he said, at this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, no, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. But the woman conceived, and she bore a son about that time, the following spring, as Elisha had said to her. When the child had grown, he went out one day to his father among the reapers. And he said to his father, Oh, my head, my head. The father said to his servant, Carry him to his mother. And when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap uh, till noon, and then he died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. Then she called to her husband and said, 
Send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may go, that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. And he said, why will you go to him today? It is, it is neither new moon nor Sabbath. She said, all is well. Then she saddled the donkey and she said to uh, her servant, urge the animal on. Do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When the man of God saw her coming, he said to Gehazi, his servant, look, there's the Shunammite. Run at once to meet her and say to her, is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with the child? And she answered, all is well. And when she came to the mountain, to the man of God, she caught hold of his feet, and Gehazi came to push her away. But the man of God said, leave her alone, for she is in bitter distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Then she said, did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, do not deceive me? He said to Gehazi, tie up your garment and take my staff in your hand and go. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. And if anyone greets you, do not reply and lay my staff on the face of the child. Then the mother of the child said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So he arose and followed her. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the face of the child and there was no sound or sign of life. Therefore, he returned to meet him and told him, the child has not awakened. When Elisha came into the house, he saw the child lying dead on his bed. So he went in and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. Then he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hands. And as he stretched himself upon him, the flesh of the child became warm. Then he got up again and walked once back and forth in the house and went up and stretched himself upon him. The child sneezed seven times, and the child opened his eyes. Then he summoned Gehazi and said, Call the Shunammite. And so he called her. And when she came to him, he said, Pick up your son. She came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, grant us, we pray, to be able to hear and to learn in such a way that our fears may be banished, our minds enlightened, our hearts kindled, and our faith increased. Direct our steps by your Spirit for the sake of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. There is a lot going on in this passage I mean, you laugh, but there's more than you think there is. Um, so, and that's what, that's what I'm trying to say. Like, I'm not sure where this is going to go exactly, just to warn you up front. But, okay, I will take my watch off. But as John Wood says, it doesn't make any difference, but we'll... Okay, you can't agree. Back in the corner. Okay. So our narrative begins with the hospitality of this wealthy woman who has a great desire to be a blessing to Elisha, the prophet of God. The woman lives in the town of Shunem, which is in the north central region of the northern kingdom of Israel. It was just a mile or two off an international highway, a major trade route that stretched from Egypt to Damascus. 
And it was about 18 miles away from Mount Carmel, which Elisha used apparently as one of his, his home bases. The result of this is that this little town of Shunem is probably on a route that Elisha would regularly take, and it was about a day's journey, you know, about 18 miles uh, from his home. So this would be, uh, for him, this became a stop-off, a stopover uh, location. And in the town of Shunem, there was this wealthy married woman who loved to offer hospitality to the prophet on his travels. She provided meals, and perceiving that he was a true prophet of Yahweh, she made the commitment to build an additional room on the roof of her house. So roofs were flat and often was a place where, where people could fellowship. And, but she builds a, a regular room with walls. I mean, it's very clear that this is a, a building with walls and a roof overhead. Along with this, we're, we're told about the furniture, a, a bed, a chair, table, and a lamp, a, probably a menorah for the prophet and his personal servant that they could use as, as their, their own space in which to rest. Elisha is touched. He's honored by this woman's generosity, by her, her hospitality and financial support. He wants to do something in order to bless uh, her in return. So he, through the servant, asks her if maybe he could speak to the king or perhaps to the commander of the army on her behalf. You know, maybe he was thinking he could provide some additional security or, or perhaps gain some favor from the king. But the woman says, no, I, I, I don't need this. I'm surrounded by kin, by family. And, and apparently she felt very secure and very safe. And so... Uh, before going any further, um, it's worth highlighting before we, we talk about the, um, the request that he does supply, that there's something on the surface here I just want to highlight, and, and that being a wealthy person, she is a wealthy woman. She has servants. She can add an, you know, she can create an extension to her home just to, in support of the prophet and perhaps of others. And so just to be reminded that so often we see God defending the, the plight of the poor, the plight of the vulnerable, the widows and, and the fatherless and the orphans and so forth. But, but here we just need to be reminded that God also loves wealthy people and that this is a wealthy woman who gains God's favor. We know the Bible does provide us with warnings about the dangers and the temptations that come with wealth. Wealth creates certain responsibilities for individuals. We also know that wealth is relative, by the way. You know, if we're just comparing ourselves with other Americans, we, we kind of, you know, see ourselves maybe in the middle or, or somewhere in, in that spectrum. But if we compare ourselves with the global um, economic situation, Almost every person here is in the top 10% of world wealth and income. I, I was just, I, okay, so I was curious. I looked it up. You know, if you're a single person, you make $20,000, you're in the top 10%. If you're a, a, a person uh, married, d- dual incomes, um, if you make $33,000 a year, you are in the top 10%. That means you make more money than 90% of the rest of the world. That means almost every person here is, is considered, you know, on a global scale, wealthy. 
And what this woman demonstrates to us, uh, again, it isn't money. It's the love of money that is the root of evil. And this passage shows us how we should be aiming to use our wealth. This money, this woman uses her money to bless God, to bless the kingdom of God. And in this case, she does so by using her money to bless and support the work of God's prophet, Elisha. How should we be aiming to use our wealth and resources? The simple answer is we should be using our wealth, our resources to bless Christ, to bless Jesus. And we do that as we bless his kingdom, as we bless his church, as we, we bless uh, those uh, whom Christ loves, as we do support uh, the widows and the orphans and those who find themselves in need. Our money, is, as Christian believers, we, we think, okay, 10% of what we earn goes to God and the rest belongs to us, right? All right, good, good. You didn't say right. Um, little Simon says, um, no, it all belongs to God. As Christian followers of Jesus, our mindset is that we are stewards of all that belongs to Christ. And he wants us to share our wealth with others. He wants us, and, and this goes back to the promise of, um, that God gives to Abraham. What does God say to Abraham? Those who bless you will be blessed. Those who curse you will be cursed. Now, Abraham is ultimately, we think of him as the father of our faith, And he has a greater descendant, a seed through whom all the families of the earth are blessed. And so that promise then rightfully then is properly applied to Christ, that those who bless Christ will be blessed. And so if you think about how do you use not just your money, but your resources, your gifts, your, 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 uh, your time, you cannot go wrong by seeking to bless Christ. And he will honor this. This will gain. This is, this, is, this, this is something that pleases God. On the whole, a church that gets this principle, a, a generous church, gives to the needs of others. This woman is a woman, a godly woman of faith. And we should allow her example to be a model uh, for us. And the result of her being a blessing to God's prophet is that this woman of faith is blessed and then tested. (laughs) Blessed and tested. So this is verses 14 and following. Her faith is blessed when Gehazi, Elisha's servant, observes that this woman and her husband are without children, that the husband is now too old to have children. Now, there's something that's going on in the language and in the background that, that is, I think, intentional here. It's not just, as soon as you hear that the woman's too old, or, or not the woman, but the husband's too old to, to have a, a, a child, immediately, it, this connects us to an earlier story, right? I've already mentioned him, Abraham. Abraham and Sarah both, in, in their case, were too old uh, to have children naturally. <clears throat> but there's some other language here that shows that the author has the Abraham and Sarah story in the back of his mind, because when it describes um, this conversation that, uh, that Elisha has with the, the woman, it describes her as standing in the doorway. These little details. Why do we need to know where she's standing? Well, this is exactly where Sarah is standing when she overhears the angel of the Lord promising Abraham uh, the, the coming of a miracle son. She's standing in the doorway of her tent. And 
the words that Elisha uses are almost the exact same words that are used by the angel of the Lord to Abraham. This time, next year, a year from now, you will have a son. It's the same language. And so what, we're, what the, the author seems to be doing is he's, he's triggering that this is what we're seeing here is a similar um, episode as to what happened with Abraham and Sarah. The Lord grants the, the wish. And this woman, uh, one year later, just as the prophet uh, declares, she has a son. But then some years pass, and the boy, while still a boy, is nevertheless old enough to be out in the field with his father reaping a harvest. And then suddenly the boy complains of this mysterious pain in his head, my head, my head. And immediately the father has a servant take the son, carry the son back to the house where, uh, where the, the mother is. And the mother lays the child on her lap, and there he dies. This is not the way you think the story is going to go. I mean, this is the miracle child, right? How in the world can the God, this great God of power and goodness and love, now allow this son of promise to die in the lap of his mother? We can only imagine the grief, the confusion, the the pain that this woman immediately experiences. I think instinctively she she carries the son, lays him up in this kind of the sanctuary that you know a space dedicated for the prophet. She she lays the child on uh, on the prophet's bed, and immediately she she goes to her husband and and says, "We need a servant to to get a donkey so that she can go see the prophet." And the, and the husband doesn't seem to understand what is happening um, because he's why are you going to see the prophet? It's not a feast. It's it's not a holy day or a Sabbath. Why, why, why now? And, and, and she just, she doesn't explain the situation. She just has this burning passion and desire to see, to get into the presence of the prophet Elisha. And so she and a servant make this journey of 18 miles to Mount Carmel um, to gain an audience with Elisha. And as soon as we get there, we, we hear the emotion in her words uh, when she finally gets into the presence of, of, of the prophet. Did I ask my Lord for a son? And I, she said, this didn't come from me. And did I not say, do not lie to me, do not deceive me? You can hear the pain. Now, Elisha... <laughs> God bless him. He still doesn't know what's happening here. He's confused by this um, because at this point, he doesn't understand uh, what what is um, taking place because the Lord has hidden the woman's situation from him. And as he begins to understand, it's, it's not clear that Elisha, he seems to be very much caught off guard. He doesn't know what to do. So the very first thing, he's like, well, <laughs> you know, he seems kind of just scrambling what to do. You know, here, take my staff, Gehazi. You know, maybe it'll be like Moses and, you know, how God powerfully uses the staff to, to part the waters and to do miracles. And, and, and Gehazi, take the staff, lay it on the child. Maybe God will impart some blessing, some power. Maybe somehow this will restore the son. This is not good enough for the, the mom, though. Uh, the woman says, I will not leave unless you return with me. 
She is going to do everything that she can until God shuts the door, until the prophet shows that um, this is, in fact, a lost cause. Uh, she will not give up. So this is a, a determined and resilient and also a woman who believes that God can work the impossible, that God can, in fact, do the miraculous and that for whatever reason, Elisha is the focal point. Elisha is uh, the, 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 the key. Uh, he's the instrument of God's life-giving power in this situation. Well, indeed, Gehazi fails, and he reports back to that effect. And so, Elisha and the mother do arrive on the scene. And, and once again, we see Elisha going in to the room, shutting the door. You know, these miracles take place behind closed doors often. And he does two things. And now he's beginning to get his legs underneath him. I think he's remembering back probably to the story that his mentor, uh, his teacher, the great prophet Elijah, told him about a very similar situation when Elijah was in the Phoenician um, town of Zarephath. And there, a very similar situation where a widow loses a son and, uh, and he dies. And we see Elijah, the, the prophet, do these exact same two things. The first thing is he prays. Elisha prays to the Lord. He prays, you know, immediately he realizes, I'm not the key to this. I'm not the source of power. What needs to happen here is a divine act, a supernatural, miraculous act that only God can provide. Lord, will you hear my prayer? Oh, Lord, will you not act on behalf of this woman? Will you not make your name to be great in throughout this land as a God who restores life, as a God who reverses death, who can reverse the curse, and all for the sake of not my name, oh, Lord, but for the sake of your name. He prays for the child. And then he does this other mysterious thing where he, he, he like lays on the child with his mouth on the, on the child's mouth. And it seems like two things are going on here. One, this is the pattern of Elijah. This is what Elijah does. But there's a second thing here. It's almost like the language used here is, is like God um, breathing life into Adam when Adam is first formed and is lifeless. We read of God's, uh, the Spirit breathing life into Adam <clears throat> and that he fills his nostril with, with uh, life and breath. And so we have this little scene of the sun sneezing, showing that life is now in his nostrils. This recreative, this, uh, this recreation that is taking place to give us the significance of the power that's being demonstrated through this uh, miracle. And there's some things that we are meant to see. One, Elisha is, in fact, being established as a true spirit-empowered prophet of Yahweh. The pro- this demonstrates he is on every bit the same level of his predecessor, the prophet Elijah. And it's also showing that now this is a prophet who has authority. And so this is establishing Elisha as uh, the man of God. And in addition, there's this, this comparison being made between the false gods of the northern kingdom um, uh, in comparison to the true and the living God. The idols of the land are producing death. They result in famine, scarcity. But the true God 
Not only is he able to reverse the famine, not only is he able to demonstrate he is a God of limitless power and limitless resources, but he is a God of life, even able to bring life where there is death. He's able to not just simply act the doctor, a physician who's able to restore a sick person, not dead, to life. He's able to take the one who is already dead, who is lifeless, and to miraculously reverse this curse that defines this fallen world. He is a God of resurrection life. The Bible is, this is partly apologetic. This is partly saying, look, you've got lots of choices out there on what God to believe in and what God to serve and, and, and uh, worship. But if you're paying attention, there's only one God who has the power to reverse death. He is a God of resurrection life. And that indeed um, uh, leads us into this, this point that God is resurrection life. God alone has the power over death to reverse the pain, the curse of death. And this is pointing to the reversal that is made available to us through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. When it comes to our lives, to the life of the believer, a Christian believer, there are two key resurrections. The first resurrection takes place just prior to our conversion. The first resurrection is spiritual in nature. Because what the Bible says concerning our spiritual condition, apart from God's redemptive work, that we're not just merely spiritually sick. We're like this son. We are spiritually dead. We are incapable. We are, um, we are powerless to restore spiritual life to our own hearts and souls. We are powerless to restore a right and reconciled and peace with God, our creator, in our own strength. We are spiritually dead. And the only way that our eyes are open to the beauty of Christ, the only way that we can reach out and receive the gift of redemption, of forgiveness and mercy and life, is if the Spirit of God first regenerates our dead hearts, spiritually speaking. We call this the act of regeneration. And this means that every genuine conversion is a miracle. It is a spiritual, divine act of God. And this is the first resurrection. The second resurrection is the one we most often talk about. And that's the resurrection that takes place sometime in the future when Christ will return. And at that resurrection, the souls of those who have died, along with those who are currently alive at his coming, will be resurrected with new physical bodies. Not only will their souls be uh, spiritually resurrected, but now we will be joined with a new physical resurrected body that will never grow old, never get sick, never experience pain and sorrow and sickness and death. That is the second resurrection. And all of this is saying, you want those kinds of resurrections, so there's only one God who can provide it. It's Yahweh. It's the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But I think the scriptures go further than even these two resurrections. 
See, God loves to do resurrections, you know, let's maybe sometimes fig- usually figurative. Not, I'm, I'm, I, normally, I, I, I've heard stories, I've never witnessed this in any respect personally, uh, of people literally being resurrected from the dead. But what I'm really talking about is when we face death-like experiences, when we experience the death of a dream, of a a life goal or ambition, or maybe it's the loss of a job or a career or the loss of our health or the loss of a dearly, of a dear loved one. And we think, oh, I didn't see that coming. That's not the way my life script was meant to go. And we experience a kind of death. What the Bible is saying is, even in that situation, God is able to restore the years that the locusts have taken, that God is able to bring new life. He ends one chapter, and he begins a a next chapter. This is exactly the way the Lord encourages the Israelites in a time of death, of national death, when they are in Babylonian exile. He gives them these words in Isaiah chapter 40. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? That is, to these Israelites who were in, in their, their homeland's been desolated, destroyed, ruined. Their dreams of a national future are gone. They are living under the difficulties of, of foreign exile. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. You see, they're experiencing this death-like experience. And the prophet encourages them, have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding He does not faint or grow on. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. How do we experience this resurrection life? Again, the woman shows us the way. She shows us faith. And, and just going back briefly, that parallel that the author is making with Abraham and Sarah. In this case, it's not the husband, but it's the mom. It's the wife who is modeling for us the faith of Abraham. She believes in a God like Abraham, who, if necessary, can bring a son back from the dead. That's what Abraham believed when he was willing to sacrifice Isaac, that he, God could somehow bring him back. That's the faith of this woman. She has Abraham-level faith. And I don't know that her son would have been resurrected if she had not exercised that faith. And so what do we do when we're, we're at the bottom? Well, one, we need each other. <laughs> we need to be praying, but we need to stay connected to the prophet. Not Elisha, of course. Jesus. Jesus says, I am the vine. You are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will what? He will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. 
Jesus is the greater Elisha. And one of the ways he demonstrates this, you might recall that you saw this connection with the feeding of the 5,000 and Elisha prior feeding the 100. Well, something very similar takes place here. It's interesting, fast forward to the New Testament period, roughly 800 years, when Jesus meets a widow outside of this little town called Nain. And she's part of a funeral procession. Her only son has died. And Jesus, it says, just has compassion on this woman. It doesn't even look like he's looking to make a statement. He just has compassion on her. And he speaks to the dead son and he rises. He comes back from the dead. This is one of the resurrection stories that's connected with Jesus. So here's what's interesting about that story in connection with Elisha. Guess where this, this little town of Nain is located? It's about three miles from Shunem. They're sister little towns. And by the time of Jesus, it looks like Shunem may no longer be a town. But the people in that area who likely would have remembered the great work of Elisha in their little town, they would have connected this with Jesus. In fact, they refer to Jesus. Is he the prophet? Maybe in this case, referring like Elisha. And so we, like the woman, we need to stay connected to Jesus because in him is life. In him is blessing. In him is the favor of God. It doesn't mean we won't be tested, but it means even in the darkness, God can bring about resurrection. Well, let's, let's pray. Oh Lord, it is our heart's desire to please you. Help us in our endeavors this and every day so that in the face of all challenges, we may be able to finish the good work of faith which you have caused us to begin. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.